0: All right. Uh, Does anyone not have a handout? Okay. I thought we could start by reviewing from last week. So if anyone had any thoughts from last week uh, regarding the scriptures, the Bible, uh, we could talk about those for just a minute or two. Any uh, additional thoughts as you've had opportunity to reflect on it over the week? That's no problem at all. We'll, uh, we'll keep coming back periodically, so there'll be opportunity. If you happen to think of something in a week or two related to one of the previous topics, then we can certainly come back to that. So, uh, this week, uh, we come to the section that is uh, in the Statement of Faith titled, The True God. And again, we have our four questions. And this week, and probably for the next couple of weeks, I will add a fifth question, and that's this. What order or title makes the most sense for these sections? Uh, The reason that I say that, just to give a little bit of of a background on it, is when you look at the doctrine of God, technically you have the doctrine of God generally, and then you have the doctrine of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so, depending on the thing that you're looking at, they organize those topics in different ways. And so the question is, is the way that it's organized in the statement of faith clear, easy to follow, understandable about the distinctions in those categories I suppose we could say. So first of all the true God and this first part uh, talks about God, the concept of God generally. We believe that there is one living and true God, an infinite intelligent spirit whose name is Jehovah, the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth. So Why are these different things important? Let's take, first of all, um, why is it important that there is only one true God?
1: Okay,
0: the world worships many. Okay, good. Any other reasons?
2: Yes, Bruce.
0: Right. Yeah, that's an excellent point for sure. Uh, and there are several verses that support this idea uh, on the on the back of your page. Uh, for example, Jeremiah ten ten says, "The Lord is the true God." Um, Exodus fifteen eleven, "Who is like you among the gods?" Um, And then, uh, in addition to that, it talks about some of his attributes, like Psalm 147, Great is our Lord, abundant in strength, his understanding is infinite. Uh, Why is it important that God is spirit? Okay. What about Jesus? He
1: was
0: Okay. No, I'm just helping us think through it. I'm not trying to give you a hard time. Uh, so he's spirit. Well, John 4, uh, it's important that God is a spirit because that impacts our worship. Uh, we're not looking at God face to face, at least at the present time. Uh, we have to worship him according to, to who and what he is and the ways that he has said that he should be worshipped. Um, I think probably the most significant aspect of God being spirit is that this impacts our understanding of God in that our present society emphasizes the material world. We're very caught up in the things that we can see right in front of us. And so uh, some have observed, rightly or wrongly, but I think rightly, that you have sort of these, these two extremes. You have the extreme that says that every single event is attributed to a spiritual force. And you have the other extreme that says that every single event has purely rational, uh, not even rational, purely uh, physical material causes. The danger of the one extreme is, of course, something like animism. Uh, In in certain countries, that is the religion in which people would perceive and they say, well, this rock has the spirit of the rock living in it and those sorts of ideas. And if, I, if this particular bad thing comes in my life, I've offended some sort of spirit. We tend to be on the other end of the spectrum. We say, well, there is, no, there is no non-physical world, so why did I get sick? I didn't get a flu shot, this person sneezed on me, I didn't wash my hands, those sorts of things. And so we would completely exclude the possibility that I'm sick, for a spiritual reason now again we can't uh, we have to be careful about identifying with too much confidence this person is sick because they disobeyed God last week and so God gave them you know the flu this week I, I think we have to be careful about those sorts of parallels but one of the questions we should ask is is there any connection between my present circumstance and the fact that God is a spirit working in the world working in my life And I think that that's something that tends to be excluded in our thinking uh, whose name is Jehovah? Why is this significant? Okay, good. Technically, in the Old Testament, God's name is represented by the Hebrew equivalents of YHWH, and then uh, the practice of the Jews was to insert vowels. Uh, for another of the names of God, in the interest of not taking God's name in vain, and so that's where we get the word that's transliterated or, or brought into English as Jehovah. It's not a bad word. It certainly represents, I think, the concept. I think the significance of it is less than is less that um, it's a name like John or Mike or or or, or Bill or whatever, and more that. This was the name by which God revealed himself to his people Israel. And I think that that's significant for us to be aware of. Jonathan, you have a thought? Right. But if you look at J-H-V-H, it's an attempt to transliterate or draw a parallel in the English of of the Hebrew representation. I, it certainly has connections, I'm sure, to the Latin. I'd have to go back and revisit that. But um. So if you look in the Nasby, for example, if, every time you see Lord in small caps, that is a representation, I think every time, that's a representation of the, this particular name of God, just for sake of information. And uh, as Bruce pointed out, when it says that he's the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth, that puts God in a unique position different than any other being in the universe. Not only is, does he exist, but he made everything else that exists, and he rules over it, which I think is a function of his having made it. Um, we have the concept of ownership. You know, This is my car, so if I want to get it dirty and, and put a dent in it or whatever, it's my car, I can do whatever I want with it. To a greater extent, if something belongs to me because i made it it's it's mine even to a larger degree um, any other thoughts on this first phrase before we move on to the next one
1: Mhm
2: Sure
0: It's also fascinating to see how Jesus used that phrase as well in his discussion with the Pharisees. He says, before Abraham was, I am. How do we know that he was claiming to be God? Because their next step was to try to stone him for blasphemy. And so uh, Jesus took to himself uh, the reality that that he is God. Uh, The second phrase, that he's inexpressibly, yes, yeah, go ahead. So God, being spirit, can hear our prayers and be involved in our lives without us seeing him right in front of us. That's a very good point. Good, good. Uh, The Second phrase, he's inexpressibly glorious in holiness. I don't think we would dispute that God is holy. Uh, Consider Isaiah 6, that the the angels say God is holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of his glory. Um, Holiness has two aspects, I think, that are important for us to recognize. The first is... um, I'm going to use poor English or, or or unusual wording. The first is God's aboveness. What do I mean by that? He's exalted. The second is God's apartness from what? From sin. And we see both those concepts in Isaiah 6. And so um, Isaiah 6:3 is is, is uh, cited on the on the back page there. We see both the fact that God is exalted and God is separate from sin. Can we be holy as God is holy? In those two ways, can we be like God in holiness? Which one can we be like God? I would argue at any point. Yeah, Because we're never going to be exalted as the ruler of the universe, right? But we can be separate from sin. And I, I think that this is an important concept and uh, something that I think it might be worth considering if we want to strengthen in this section. Not that it is saying anything that is untrue, but, but merely that we could perhaps develop it a little bit more. And uh, in connection with this would be the idea that um, God has a number of, uh, of attributes. Um, for example, um, and this isn't on your page, this was in connection with some other study I was doing of this. Uh, when we think of God in terms of his attributes, they're not just a list of facts about God, there are things that are true of him, and there are things that are true of him collectively all at the same time. And, and we get into trouble when we look at them one at a time we say, well, God is love. Well, that means God does, never does anything that we don't perceive as love. Well, but God is at the same time he is loving, also holy, just, powerful, all of these other sorts of things. Yes? I
1: love how puts it. All of God does, all that God does.
0: Okay. Yes. That is a, yeah. That, all. Say that one more time.
1: All of God does, all that
0: God does. All of God does, all that God does. Yes. Yes. The question with attributes, though, connected with that, is which ones are, uh, sometimes people will break down the attributes of God and they'll say, here are the attributes of God that are, sometimes they'll use the word communicable or incommunicable, or uh, God's greatness and God's goodness. And they'll say, well, God's greatness are things that we can do, God's goodness, are sorry, God's greatness are things that only God does or is, God's goodness are things that we can be and do as well. It gets difficult, though. Because even take one like love, where do you put that? Well, we, we, we tend to put it in goodness. But we can't love as God loved. In terms of scope, in terms of consistency, in terms of all of these sorts of things. And so I think that there are certainly attributes of God that we will never possess, but that we can possess in part. For example, we would put omniscience in the list of attributes that only God can have. But what is omniscience? Omniscience is the greatest form of knowledge. Can we possess knowledge? Yes. So, so that's why it becomes difficult to break these two things down, to break all of these character qualities of God down neatly into, into two distinct lists. Yes.
1: fact that, again, they're not parts, but his love is holy love, his his, uh, wisdom is holy wisdom,
0: his, his, uh, you know, any attributes, is it's holy. Uh, Right. And that's, that's a, uh, That's one of those things that people argue over in seminary. Is holiness the supreme attribute of God? And I think that there are good reasons to believe that it is. I'm not sure that there is ever a direct statement in Scripture to that effect. So my only only, uh, response to that would be simply that um, I think that I think that holiness is, it's difficult, in my mind, I'm not fully convinced that holiness is the governing attribute of God, but I know that there are a lot of good reasons to think that it is. I think at the end of the day, the important thing would be that we do not try to make the things that are true about God oppose each other, fight against each other. Yes? Were you saying something? Right.
1: So, how do you set apart in Iraq? Right. We have to be involved in our lives. Right. We're sinners. We know he's set apart. He has a different set of, I mean, he works with a different set of standards than we are just capable people doing. Right. But he's explained to us who he is and what his expectations are. Sure. But that's what the holiness thing I get. The you know, set apart aspect of holiness. Right.
0: An interesting interesting uh but again, like point you to said,
1: consider. Has, has two aspects. Right. Not just set apart from physical things, but transcendent, on high, exalted. Right. So I think from that standpoint I mean we could uh input infinite perfect in right. that same you know, right. description.
0: Yeah, I think I think I think that there's a certain extent to which you can uh, there's a certain extent to which you can take one of these things that are unique to God, His perfection, His eternal nature, the fact that He doesn't change, and we can say this is the thing that is most important about God. And I don't think it's bad for us to at least ask that question: Is this the thing that's most important about God? But I do think that um, I do think that we have to be careful to to not say that that is the only thing that we should emphasize about God. But I think probably the strongest argument, or one of the strongest arguments for holiness being the main thing about God would be consistent phrases in Scripture that say things like, be holy because I am holy, things like that. Leviticus 19, you see it again in First Peter and in other places. Do you have further thoughts? Okay. Uh, so, uh, I think that we would do well to add an expanded phrase in this section regarding the attributes of God, The nature of the wording of that phrase is something that I'm still thinking about. I just wanted to raise the issue for us to to discuss. Um, Third phrase, that he is worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. So, should we worship God? I think we see Mark 12.30 on the back page, Revelation 4.11. Mark 12.30 is, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Revelation 4:11. Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power, because you created all things. Before you created all things, and because of your will, they existed, and were created. Is God worthy of our worship? I don't think we would have any dispute with that whatsoever. Um, can we, in connection with worship or honor or giving Him glory, also have confidence in God? Yes, because He said, "I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever." And, ought we to love God? I mean, obviously, if that's the first and greatest commandment, I think we would say, yes, we ought to love God. So, uh, any further thoughts on that phrase? Yes. Is
1: it worth noting that he is the only one
0: worthy? So, perhaps he is alone worthy or something like that? Yeah. Uh, And you would think that that would be sort of understood based on the first phrase, but sometimes things that you think would be understood are not always, so that might not be a bad thing to clarify. The next phrase, that in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity is perhaps one of the most complicated truths in the Bible. And there are many attempts to explain what that looks like. For example, someone will say, well, the Trinity is like water. Water can exist as vapor, as a solid, and as a liquid. What's the problem with that analogy? They're not at the same time, all three of those things. That would be something that was condemned as a heresy called modalism, that God sort of changes modes or, or, or things, or, or to put it in a, a sort of a crude way, it's sort of like when God is acting this way, he puts on a a hat and now he's God the Father and then he comes here and now he's God the Son and then he comes here and now he's God the Spirit. What are some scriptural passages that would argue against that idea? The baptism of Jesus. Baptism of Jesus. What happens? God the Father speaks, the Holy Spirit's descending as a dove, Jesus is coming up out of the water. They're all three present at the same time. Or one of my favorite verses is uh, in 1 uh, Peter, I'm trying to think if it's in here. I don't think it's actually in here. Uh, where it says that uh, you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father uh, through the sanctification of the Spirit to be sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Distinct functions. Uh, But the phrase that we have here is highlighting the fact, well, uh, the next phrase, we'll get to that in a moment. But the, the question, the basic question, within God are there three persons? According to Scripture, I think we'd have to say yes. Why? Well, look at some of the passages on the back of your page there. Uh, Matthew 28:19, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because just to baptize them in the name of God would be insufficient. John 15:26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... That is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. So Jesus is speaking of at least, of, of, not at least, of two other persons in this verse. The Helper, or the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. And so we see here that I think these passages argue clearly that um, God is three. John ten thirty, Jesus claims deity. I and the Father are one or uh, various other places as well. John eight fifty eight, I believe, is the verse I was quoting earlier about before Abraham was, I am, which is another claim to deity. Um, and then John 17 is an, an extended discussion of that. Or even Acts 5. Uh, why did Satan fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? At the end of verse 4, you have not lied to men but to God. So lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God. Uh, Philippians 2, 5, and 6, Jesus existed in the form of God. And so uh, I think we would not argue with the doctrine. I think it's difficult to often to understand or explain the doctrine. Uh, That the three are equal in every divine perfection is significant because in our present world, we have this idea that different jobs means less value. Right? We see this in the discussion of roles within the home, for example, or roles within the church. Uh, Let's take the one uh, of roles within the church. I'm not more important than you because you've asked me to be the pastor. I have a different set of responsibilities to some extent, and to a certain extent, a greater accountability because I'm in that role, but I'm not a better person, and I'm not... Uh, it's not that I have no need to change and grow like everyone else in the church. In the same way, the fact that, or perhaps uh, pointing back to a greater truth, the fact that the Son obeyed the will of the Father does not make Jesus less than God the Father. The fact that the Spirit proceeds according to the will of the Father and the Son does not make the Spirit less than God the Father or God the Son. They have different functions, different roles, different purposes. Going back to the verse I quoted a few minutes ago from 1 Peter where it says, the foreknowledge of God the Father. You see God the Father organizing and orchestrating and sovereignly ruling. You see uh, the Spirit as the one who's associated with giving life. And then you see the Son associated as the one who actually implemented or made salvation possible through his life and his death. Different functions, all necessary for our salvation, but... uh, not in any way meaning that the Father or the Son or the Spirit are less important than the other. And so I think that's very significant to understand when it says they're equal in every divine perfection. And this comes back to something that I mentioned a few weeks ago. When we have this idea of uh, one of the songs that we sing, and I've, I've been thinking about if there's a way that we could change the wording to make it a little bit clearer, God cannot be separated from God. So even though there are distinct functions, there cannot be a rift in the Trinity. And yet we have the truth that at the cross, God's wrath was poured out on God. But not to an extent that Jesus became not God. Connected with that would be the, uh, sometimes the misunderstanding of Philippians 2. What does Philippians 2 say? Uh, in some translations, it basically sounds like Jesus gave up being God and came to earth. How do we know that's not true? Think about John 1. Um, Jesus says to Nathanael, when you were standing under the fig tree, I knew you. How could he say that? Because he's still God. It's better to understand that the humiliation in Philippians 2 was Jesus adding to himself a human nature, humbling himself, rather than him giving up something. Now I think we do have to recognize that he voluntarily chose not to exercise some aspects of his deity, for example, could he have spoken and wiped out the entirety of the Roman army uh, that was present at the crucifixion? Certainly, and he did not do so. But that didn't mean that he wasn't God. It meant that he chose not to act in a particular way that only God would be capable of doing. And so when we say that they are, there are three persons, then we start going this way and we start, start widening the gap between the three persons. Then we come to this next phrase, they're equal in every divine perfection. We start to close the gap. And we have to maintain those two things in tension. So I think that that's, that's significance. We, I already basically talked about ex- executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. Uh, here's a question for you. When it says execute, what do you think? Okay. Is that the most common use of that word today? No. I mean... In the context of like a will or something like that, you execute a will, but if you've ever written a will, you generally hear them say that, and you're like, I don't really know what that means, you know. So, again, my point is not to say that this is untrue, but, for example, the word execute, um, carry out, fulfill, um, perform, something along those those, uh, those lines might be a clearer word um, Offices? Yeah. Yeah. What would be a uh a synonym? Rolls. Roles, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um uh, harmonious is another of those words that we don't use often. Uh, it, it's basically the idea of that they're working together, but there might be a better a better way to say it than just working together. So um again, it's not um What's
1: that?
0: Right, right. Even synchronized might be something that, um, if you work with computers, it's a more common phrase, but I don't know that it's in general vocabulary as much. My one example of when synchronizing goes bad was, I said, oh, I need to back up all the pictures on my wife's computer, because we just got married, and I want to make sure that they would be safe, and she'd be happy about that. I set the sync direction to go the wrong way, so it was syncing from the empty folder overwriting the folder that had all the pictures in it. I stopped it. We only lost, I think, one month of pictures, but she hasn't let me entirely forget that. What's that? I think that goes the other way. Oh, her putting up with me? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That brings us to the end of these phrases. Any further thought on these phrases? Sure. Right. Right. We could, we could write books and books and books and still not cover the subject of God exhaustively.
2: Right. Right.
0: Well if we're gonna include ineffable we also need to have uh, in, in, immutable. Yeah yeah. What um what do you mean by ineffable, just so I know. you can't describe it. Okay. So uh, so you don't know what you mean by it. No, I'm just kidding.
1: <laughs>
0: but I mean it is significant. God is God is mysterious, God is uh this is actually one of, the, one, of the, um, one of the big debates in like the 1950s, 1960s. Can we know God? And some people said no for that very reason. And I think what happened was they took the idea that God is exalted and they made it that God is so exalted that there's no connection back to humanity. And so we read the words of Scripture and we hope that they give us sort of a sense of what God is like, but we can't really know Him, can't really have a relationship with God. Like, we would say that we ought to because God's not really knowable. I mean, even a word like incomprehensible, when you hear that word, you think, well, I can't understand it. But in reality, the way that that word used to be used was you can't grasp the whole of it. And so that's another of those things where, I mean, there's, there's important truths to include. Look on the back page, if you would. You've got all the, all the different uh, verses there. Um, we'll come back to the third page in a moment. Um, This was something where I tried to summarize a two-page thing that I wrote out for seminary into a single paragraph, and I think it could certainly be expanded. Um, God the Father has decreed an all-encompassing plan for the universe, which He is constantly unfolding. This plan began with creation, includes redemption, and will culminate in eternity with His people. The primary work of God the Father is demonstrated in His sovereignty over all things, by providence and in miracles." I read that to you not to say that it's a perfect statement or that it couldn't be expanded upon, but just to illustrate a couple of things. For example, I think it would be helpful in our discussion of God, potentially, to split, or at least clarify, have two separate paragraphs under the idea of the true God. One dealing with the concept of God generally, and one dealing with God the Father. Uh, Because I think, because those two things tend to get lumped together, we tend not to adequately express what we believe about God the Father. I think it's also helpful, and again, we could talk about the best way to do this, to think about what is the primary work of God in the, in the world. And, of course, we could have some discussion on whether this describes it adequately, but um, I think that there is certainly, I think there is certainly good biblical evidence that it's at least this, if not more than this. Uh, So in connection with that if you look at the next one you have God the Son and God the Spirit Why did I put those two in that order because that tends to be the order in which God revealed himself to mankind? We have of course the concept of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep so forth But the concept of the Holy Spirit doesn't seem to be as fully developed until you come to the New Testament Jesus says I'll send the helper. Here's what he'll be like and we have a variety of truths revealed in the New Testament about the Spirit. And so not to say that he's not in the Old Testament, but it seems that God the Father was revealed first and most clearly in the Old Testament. God the Son is, is progressively revealed as we come to the New Testament. God the Spirit is revealed more clearly even in the New Testament. And people, I think, I'm trying to recall the verse, I think we have it here. When it says, uh, people would base this idea on John fifteen twenty six, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And so in connection with that, trying to clarify the relationship between the persons of the Trinity, that Christ is the only begotten Son of God, the Father, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, again, an organization of function, and role more than a, a, an idea of, a, of value, but I think that's why most statements of faith would tend to have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And I meant to print out the order that we have it in the statement of faith, but I believe, it, I believe the sections are the true God, the Holy Spirit, and then probably four or five sections down, we have one on the virgin birth. That's an important doctrine. I think it's very important for us to believe it and to understand it. But it is a subset of Jesus being the Son of God. And so we'll, I think what we'll do next week is look more at that and look at them perhaps out of order, but to see if that makes sense to group God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit as topics one after the other. Do you have it there? So
1: it's scripture. Yeah.
0: Right. But I think that they're included, when they originally wrote it, they included the virgin birth, but I think that one certainly needs to be expanded. So I raise that not to sort of uh, have all of them sort of filter into each other, but just to say that as if you turn to the bottom of page three there, the two questions are. Do we put Jesus or the Holy Spirit as the next one in order? Because in the statement of faith as it presently stands, it's the Holy Spirit. And should we see if there is anything lacking in our description of God the Father? Um, connected with that, we have these ideas of uh, providence and miracles. And why, do I, why did I put that in the, the statement at the top of page 4? And why is that a helpful thing to consider? Uh, God's sovereignty is helpful for clarifying his relationship to the universe. Uh, some wrong ideas would include that God used to be part of his universe, deism. He sort of wound up the clock and stepped aside. That was a popular one around the time that uh, the United States was founded. Um, second, a second one would be that God is too far above his universe to be well known by us. That's what I was talking about a few minutes ago. That would be the idea of neo-orthodoxy. And even a more recent development than that would be that God is too tied up in his creation to be all-powerful. This would be process theology. They would argue that God is bound up in the creation to the same extent that we are. Far more powerful, far greater, but not completely free of the processes of the universe such that we cannot really truly say that God is all-powerful. Well, where does that error come from? It comes from the idea of failing to clarify the relationship of God to the universe. And so that's why I think that it is helpful to, um, uh, to consider whether we should put something, uh, perhaps even an expansion of, uh, although we do have it to some extent where it says maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth, uh, at least that we understand well the idea that stands behind it. Connected with that would be the idea of miracles. And if I recall, I don't think that we have anything with regards to miracles in the concept of the true God, but it's something where you see three distinct periods of miracles in the the Bible, right? You have Moses, you have Elijah and Elisha, you have Jesus and the apostles. What's the significance of those particular times? These were pivotal points, I believe, in human history. In the time of Moses, it was God showing his power to deliver his people from Egypt, In the time of Elijah and Elisha, it was a a contest, if you will, for in the sight of the people of God. Are you going to follow Baal and other pagan gods, or are you going to follow the true God? And In the time of Jesus, the miracles served to show that indeed he was who he said that he was. And um, so what is a miracle? C.S. Lewis said there are times in which God intrudes on his universe that do not contradict nature but are beyond natural law. And I think that it might be helpful for us to consider whether there is some way that we would incorporate that idea uh, to sort of develop the idea that he is the maker and supreme ruler, that he also has the authority to say, this day is going to be a little bit longer than that other day. Or the sea is going to stop, even though it's storming, or some of those sorts of ideas. And then a few connected ideas that I think would be helpful for us to think about, and these are just some things when i when I taught through this concept of God uh, earlier this year uh, prayer is a concept that, if not in this section in another section, we should incorporate into the statement of faith and um, uh, because that is connected with the idea of God's sovereignty ruling over all things. We pray to God because he's told us to do it. We also pray to God because it's part of his sovereign plan for the universe. And I think that that's important for us to recall. We also have the idea of angels, that God has spoken to his universe through means of various messengers. And this perhaps fits better under the idea of the scriptures, in that God has communicated in various ways, like it says in Hebrews 1, in many ways and in many times, many portions he's spoken, uh, but in these last times he has spoken finally and fully through his son. And then we also have the question of Satan and demons, and I could be wrong, I'd I, I have to go back and, and read through the whole of it again, but I don't recall there being a section that specifically uh, addresses that in depth and I think that it's important in connection with God the Father because as we'll look at in Second Thessalonians 2 we have the question of the relationship between God and sin and so I think it's important for us to understand the relationship between God and Satan both in terms of authority in terms of things that are distinct in terms of all of these sorts of things and so uh, I, I, say, I say this because it doesn't have to be in this section, but I think that it's important to clarify these topics at some point in the statement of faith. All right. Um, yeah, I have a I have a yes. Yes. That's a good point.
1: You think of the Old Testament, you had the
2: previous
1: part of Christ being referenced in a number of places. Right. And a lot of the miracles were treated to that as well. Sure. So, I mean, I think it's an important distinction that God has returned to in the aspect of it. Yeah. That the miraculous, you know, have shown themselves.
0: That's a good point. Yeah. So that would probably come down to a question of whether we put it in the paragraph about God generally or about God the yeah. Father specifically. Sure. Sure. Good. Uh any other thoughts on all of these all of these things? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's quite possible. If you look at the verses that are listed there, I think page 3, Acts 5, 3, and 4, that is under the section on the Holy Spirit as well. And so I think a connected idea that probably, something I've been thinking on more since we started looking at these things last week, a connected idea would be do we, we repeat verses from section to section, or have them distinctively in one section? Do we um, do we put the verse immediately after the phrase that we see that that we see this verse is support for that particular phrase, just to clarify it a little bit? So there's a number of questions related to that that I think would be helpful to consider consider as far as organization. And a lot of it comes down to how you, to how you break it down. Because if you have, um, if we say God, and then we say Trinity, and we say, well, let's clarify the Trinity, and let's say, well, the Holy Spirit is God. That's good, and I'm not saying we shouldn't say it in the general statement about God. But the tension is going to be: do we go into everything about the Holy Spirit being God in that section, or do we hold it back for the other section? And, and that's one of those things, like, where do you draw the line between what's in this section and what's in the other section? And I think some of it depends on... Uh, when, it comes to, um, when it comes to science and people classifying different organi- organisms, I say, what does this have to do with it? There are people who lump things together, and there are people who split things into lots of little categories. And so there are some people that would be happy having a species of animal or plant or insect or whatever that is huge. And other people say, no, we need to divide it up into all of these subgroups. I think we face the same challenge when it comes to something like this. Which things go in which section, and where do we draw the line between the sections? And so uh, I think we definitely need to talk about that some more. Um, so I'm, I'll make a couple of notes here. Right. Right. All right, uh, anything else? All right, we'll wrap up uh, there for this morning, and uh, let's close with a word of prayer.